book of Genesis, chapter 45, verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him and cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me, and they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You, sh you shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, while Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Does good eventually come from evil? Does God cause bad things to happen? How are the events of life and God's will related? Is God pulling the strings and we're just the puppets? Is free will real? There's no simple answer to these questions, but these are questions that have been asked since the dawn of humanity, and these questions are at the center of our text for today. I get to be the lucky one to stand before you and utter these dreaded words for any preacher. I don't know. I don't know all the answers to God's ways but neither do you, and I don't believe we're meant to understand God fully, nor are we equipped to handle the fullness of God. Last week, Reverend Eskridge preached on the first half of this story of Joseph. And before we start today, for those of you who missed his sermon, let's do a very quick summation of what happened before today's text. Joseph's brothers hated him because he was their father Jacob's favorite son, because he was the son of his old age and the child of his beloved wife, Rachel. We're shown no particular virtues in Joseph. Frankly, he acts like a stereotypical brat. 
He's a bit of a tattletale and braggart. He reveals the dreams he's had and shares his interpretation of these dreams in ways that are not favorable to his brothers, but are rather flattering to himself. One day, having had enough of their little brother's ways, the brothers kidnap him and plot to kill him. But one of the brothers convinces the others, just sell him into slavery instead. So they sold Joseph into slavery and return and tell their father, Joseph is dead, and their father grieves. All the time being that Joseph is being carried off to Egypt as a slave. Years later, when a famine grips the region where Jacob and his remaining sons are living, Jacob says to his sons, go to Egypt where they have grain. The brothers appear before an Egyptian official who's in charge of distributing the grain, but it's actually Joseph who has in the intervening years risen to a position of great power because he is skilled in dream interpretation and has interpreted Pharaoh's dreams to the benefit of the country of Egypt. The Bible says by this time Joseph is second in command besides Pharaoh. Through his skill at dream interpretation, Joseph has become very powerful. He's clearly in the Pharaoh's inner circle because we read in one of the texts that he is wearing Pharaoh's signet ring and gold neck chain, a situation that denotes privilege. So as part of his power, as I mentioned, Joseph is in charge of distributing the grain and deciding who will receive it. So the brothers need him but he does not need his brothers. He recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. And thus begins Joseph's game of cat and mouse. Joseph doesn't reveal his identity to the brothers at first. Instead, he cleverly uses his power over his brothers. First, he demanded they go home and bring back his youngest brother, Benjamin. And until they do this, he imprisons one of them, Simeon, until the rest return. Kind of like taking a deposit, except in this case, it's a human being. The brothers say to one another, alas, we are paying the penalty for what we did to our brother Joseph. We saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That is why this anguish has come upon us. In these words, we see a glimmer of repentance at that moment for what they had done to Joseph. So the brothers were sent home, and Joseph's father would not let Benjamin go back to Egypt because he'd already lost Joseph. Now Simeon was imprisoned, and he was afraid he'd lose Benjamin too. But when the food ran out and the famine was still severe, Jacob had no choice but to send his sons back with Benjamin to Egypt. They come before Joseph again, and he shares a lavish meal with his brothers, but they still don't recognize him. Then Joseph instructs his servant to slip a silver cup into Benjamin's sack, and as they're heading home with grain once more, their bags are searched, and Benjamin is accused of theft and taken into custody. The brothers beg Joseph to release Benjamin, and Judah, one of the other brothers, volunteers to stay in his place. And that brings us to today's text. What an adventure. The Bible is not a boring book, friends. So Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. But Joseph's brothers weren't overcome with joy. They were terrified. 
If they thought the worst had come, what with a brother in prison and accused of theft, it had not, at least in their minds. For now it's revealed that this Egyptian in power is really their brother, the one they had betrayed and kidnapped and sold into slavery. They know they are about to get their just desserts. If there was any justice in the world, any hope they had of receiving mercy at Joseph's hands would have flown out the window. Some feel that this is a story about revenge. And maybe you do too. And maybe there's just a glimmer of that in it. It does seem that Joseph does all this for revenge against the brothers who wanted him dead. But we really can't blame him if that's the case, can we? But a more gracious interpretation would be viewing Joseph's actions as a sort of test. Will the brothers sell Rachel's other son, Benjamin, into slavery? at the expense of the other brothers, just as they had sold Joseph into slavery? Will they buy their own freedom? Will they abandon Benjamin too, like they abandoned Joseph? If this interpretation is correct, well, the brothers pass the test. Judah will not abandon Benjamin. In a moving speech, he describes how he swore to their father that he would bring Benjamin back he tells Joseph that their father has already lost one beloved son and that if he loses another, he will die. And he offers himself as a slave in place of Benjamin. Truly, it seems that the brothers have changed over the course of the story. It's only when Joseph is convinced of this change of heart that he tells them his identity. Is that coincidence? Maybe Joseph only revealed himself because they'd evidenced real repentance, which made reconciliation and forgiveness possible. Later in our story, after today's reading, Joseph's father, Jacob, dies. And the brothers approach Joseph and say, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. And it's here that Joseph responds with the words we know so well. Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You sold me, Joseph said, but God sent me. What the story of Joseph shows us is the idea that God does not promise to take away all pain, but rather promises to be with us through it all and use it for good. God promises to make great things happen, but not all great things come easily. Episcopalian priest Rick Morley writes, God doesn't always look for the path of least resistance. Sometimes God asks us to walk through fiery furnaces or bear a cross. But on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death, we are always presented with the reality that God never left us, and life is now able to bloom in the most beautiful and holiest of ways. Now, we have to take seriously the actions of humans. I personally do not believe that God planned that the brothers do evil. They alone are fully accountable for their sin just as you and I are fully accountable for our sins. On the other hand, 
We can celebrate the way God is able to use our failings to bring about good. God is able to use the situation in order to bring reconciliation into this family and to save the nations from hunger. And we should praise God that our failures to do the right thing can be changed by God into something positive too. Even though he tested and tried his brothers, Joseph learned to forgive. And forgiveness led him to freedom and reconciliation. Forgiveness is a conscious decision, an intentional decision on the part of the offended party to release the offender from the penalty of the offenses committed. And this release not only frees the offender, it frees, it frees that person who was offended, saving them from anger and bitterness. This perfectly describes the grace which God offers to us all through the cross of Jesus Christ. We do not deserve the grace God gives us in abundance, but God loved us and sent Jesus to die for our sins so that we might have life anyway. But here's the tough part. Forgiveness has to happen even if the guilty party doesn't repent. Those years which Joseph spent in slavery and prison could easily have been the fodder for a blazing anger towards his brothers. And how angry Joseph could have been with God for, assumingly, getting him into such a situation. But Joseph recognized that God had used the brothers' bad decisions to bring good out of evil. Joseph does not attribute the brothers' bad choices to God. God didn't make them sin. Joseph does, however, affirm that God was able to use those sinful actions for God's own purposes. He says in our text, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. The brothers devised evil, but God turned it into good. I don't personally believe God causes the pain and brokenness in our lives. It's a broken world, and we make bad choices sometimes. I don't believe it's God's will that some suffer and others don't. But I do believe God is right there in the midst of our suffering, using it to bring goodness and mercy and grace and to glorify God's kingdom. God made everything Joseph did prosper, even when he was enslaved, even while he was in prison. And when Joseph ascends to be second in command in Egypt, God uses him to save the very family that had betrayed him. Forgiveness is a vital part of our Christian experience, isn't it? It's necessary in terms of our relationship with God. Matthew 6, 14 and 15 says, for if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That's pretty cut and dry, isn't it? And that's really sobering to me. What if God couldn't use Joseph's circumstances for good until he forgave? What if God cannot use our difficult circumstances for good until we forgive? That's definitely food for thought. Retired Methodist Bishop Bruce, we'll leave his last name out for privacy's sake, was one of my teachers when I took classes in Methodist polity, doctrine, and history 13 years ago when I began 
ministering at St. Mark's United Methodist Church. Bruce was a salt-of-the-earth kind of man, and he went by Bruce, not Bishop. Looking back, the one thing that stands out in my mind about his physical appearance was that he wore those orthotic rocker tennis shoes. Not sure why that sticks, but that's the only thing I remember about him. It's supposed to, it's supposed to exercise you as you walk. So during one of our classes, and kind of out of the blue, Bruce shared with us this deeply sacred personal story that I want to share with you today, with his permission. While he was bishop, Bruce traveled to the country of Liberia on the African continent to attend the annual conference of Liberia's Methodist Church. It wasn't a particularly safe country in which to travel because there was a civil war going on at the time with rebels controlling portions of the country and infrastructure. Bruce arrived at the airport and was put with a respected driver who was going to take care of him for the duration of the long journey to where the conference was taking place. There were many checkpoints that they had to drive through. In the beginning, the checkpoints were run by the Liberian government, and as soon as they learned that he was a bishop from the United Methodist Church in the United States, his car was ushered through the checkpoint graciously. Soon they came to checkpoints that were being run by rebels. At these checkpoints, the driver would explain who his passenger was, and they would be ushered through, but only after large sums of money had passed hands. Finally, Bruce's car stopped at a checkpoint where they were told to get out of the car. Bruce was told to get his luggage out and to take it into the building nearby and to show them everything that was inside his suitcase. When he got into the building, it was pitch black. He couldn't see anyone. They began to ask him questions. What was he doing in Liberia? What was he going to preach about when he got to the conference? They wanted to know everything. They lit a candle and Bruce was finally able to see by candlelight that lining the inside of that room, all around him was a circle of young boys, approximately 12 to 14 years old, and each one was carrying a long gun. They stripped him bare of all of his clothing and they made him continue standing, answering their constant barrage of questions. At this point, Bruce said, he knew he was going to die. And when he came to that realization, he lost track of what was going on, lost track of time. He was consumed by the thought that his life was about to end in a horrible manner. They told him to walk outside, and he knew he was going to his death. But when he reached the yard, there was his faithful driver who told him to jump into the car quickly, and they fled, the bishop in the back seat, confused and shocked. The driver took Bruce to the annual conference. He was supposed to preach at the closing worship, and he hadn't planned a sermon because he wanted to preach on whatever topic they requested. It turned out that they asked him to preach on the topic of forgiveness. Numb from what he calls his near brush with death, the bishop resolved to preach on that topic. He preached the sermon to dead silence. And when he finished his sermon, there was absolutely no response from those gathered. There was no sound. He was afraid that maybe he'd offended those gathered, and he sat down in silent trepidation. 
He asked the gentleman sitting next to him, his Liberian counterpart, now what? And the man replied, placing his hand on Bruce's arm, now we wait, time will tell. And they waited in silence. Finally, way in the back, a man stood up. He walked up to the front and he said, some of you know me, some of you don't. Several years ago, I watched as rebels murdered my entire family in front of my eyes, my wife, my children. Then they aimed their weapons at me briefly before aiming them at the ground by my feet and unloading the bullets into the dirt. Death is too easy for you, they laughed at him. You have to live with a memory of what you just saw. He looked at the audience, comprised of faithful pastors and lay leaders of the Methodist Church for a long time. And then he said to them, I choose to forgive. I forgive you. You see, this annual conference was filled with members of the rebel party because they had infiltrated every part of society, including the Methodist Church. There were pastors who were rebels. There were lay leaders who were rebels. I forgive you, he said, because I will not allow my hatred for you to separate me from the love of God. Because Bruce was willing to preach on forgiveness, in spite of what he had gone through, one man, and possibly many more, was brought to forgive and to be freed. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What I learned from Bruce was that we never know when our own journeys into the heart of darkness will lead to someone else's healing. We never know when our own torment, our own despair, might just lead another to a place of hope. God brings about good and unexpected, unfamiliar, and sometimes completely unreasonable ways. So let's go back to what I lifted up earlier. For centuries, theologians have discussed God's participation in human events. People, in particular, some preachers, I'm sorry to say, and here I am being judgmental, forgive me, God, are often quick to interpret a disaster or an act of violence as God's punishment of a sinful people. This was a focus of much preaching during the AIDS epidemic and September 11th and Hurricane Katrina, and the list goes on and on. This fire and brimstone type of theology goes largely unchallenged. And although we do see a confusing, at times vengeful and hard to understand God in the Old Testament, and although we cannot fathom God's ways at times, Jesus Christ changed everything, my friends. And now it's crystal clear. God is a God of grace and forgiveness. God is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is a God who is mighty to save and who wants to save. Not a God of vengeance, not a God of retribution, not a God of revenge, not a God who desires to harm God's children, but a God who says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. Joseph is able to look upon the hardest days of his life and see the hands of God working for himself and all of God's people. He's able to look upon the awful experience 
experience of being forsaken by family, sold as a slave, and subsequently exploited and plunged into jail as God moved mightily to save his people and all the people of that corner of the world from famine. Are we, like Joseph, able to look at the hardest days of our lives, whatever that might be for you, and see God's hand working on our behalf and on behalf of the greater world? Because it's there, God's hand, leaving fingerprints all over the circumstances of your lives. What are you going through in your life that is hard and sorrowful and scary? Not only is God with you in it, but I am confident that God means to bring good out of it somehow. And that's a promise that I believe we can take to the bank. Broken relationships, financial struggles, cancer, depression, grief, homelessness, hunger, fear, shame, regret, Whatever you face, it will be redeemed. It might not be in the manner you're expecting it or in the time frame in which you'd like it. Joseph had to wait many long years to understand all that God had done in his life, and he had to forgive. Honestly, the goodness for which we wait might not even be in this lifetime. People do die. Marriages do break. Finances do dwindle away. But the promise is that one day all of our sorrows shall fall away and we shall live in God's presence in a wondrous way which we can only imagine now. And that promise helps us to endure and to have faith and to trust in our loving, forgiving Savior. God means to bring good out of your struggle. God means to bring good out of my struggle. Because what the world means for bad, God means for good. So today I invite you, no matter how hard that might be, to trust in that promise, to hold fast to God's faithfulness in your life, because God is not finished with you yet. Thanks be to God. Amen.